Hello, folks. Welcome to First Thursday, the monthly podcast from the Labor Relations Information System. My name is Will Aitchison. I'll be your host for the next 45 minutes or so while we go over some recent developments in the public safety, labor, and personnel world. Uh, I've got a real interesting lineup of cases to talk to you about this month. Uh, I'm going to talk about the Thin Blue Line case, uh, a case in which an employer decided to ban the display of the Thin Blue Line flag and what that meant in the eyes of a federal court judge in terms of the constitutionality of such an order. Uh, I've got an interesting case where uh, we ask the question, can a union challenge an arbitrator's opinion? Should a union challenge an arbitrator's opinion? And then lastly, uh, I've got a little bit of a Christmas present for you. That's the last topic I'm going to discuss. I'm just going to leave it as a teaser for now, but we have a very interesting piece of scholarly work. Off to the cases, and let's start uh, with the discussion of the cell phone case out of Pittsburgh. So what goes on here? This is a police recruit uh, back in 2014 by the name of Cyrus Sukeda. Uh, in late 2014, uh, the city began to get complaints that Sukeda may have engaged in improper conduct with an underage female, in particular that he provided alcohol to her and communicated with her through Tinder. A couple of detectives, uh, James Simonovic, boy did I butcher that name, and Jeffrey Abraham uh, met with Sukeda in order to conduct an interview. Sukeda had been arrested by this point in time, and Sukeda was placed in a soundproof interview room. The detectives gave him his Miranda warnings. Sukeda chose not to speak with the officers, and the interview was terminated. End of story, right? Nope. Because Simunovic, I'll call him that, my apologies to him, also took custody of Sukeda's cell phone from the arresting officer and put it on his desk. Sukeda didn't consent to a search of the phone's contents, and Abraham did what he should have done under the circumstances. He wrote an application for a search warrant. We all know now, right, for a public employer to force an employee to divulge the contents of their cell phone, there's going to need to be probable cause and a warrant. And the city is doing this right in this case. Uh, So Abraham writes an application for a warrant. A judge signs it. And Abraham transfers the phone to a third detective, Timothy Cole, to conduct the search. Cole is uh, one of the techie guys in the Pittsburgh Police Department. Uh, All police departments have at least one person like this, so he gets these sorts of assignments. The warrant authorized the police to search for and seize, and I'm going to quote this because this language becomes very, very important, to seize, quote, all electronic data to include, but not limited to, phone calls, text messages, emails, photos, videos, call log, 
instant messages and correspondence from applications that were on Sukeda's phone. Probably didn't need to go beyond all electronic data, right? But they did. Uh, so Cole gets the cell phone, gets the warrant, uh, and he starts by trying to figure out what Sukeda's passcode is so he can get into the cell phone. Sukeda, who obviously hasn't learned this lesson yet, uses uh, a passcode that is derived from his badge number. Cole figures it out right away and extracts all of the phone's electronic data. He does a data dump on the thing and puts it into a program to be decoded into a viewable file, which he can then search and analyze. When Cole is reading through Sukeda's chat messages, he discovers a message between Sukeda and a person who identified themselves as a 15-year-old female. Cole does the right thing again. He says, time out. He stops, and now he goes and gets a second warrant, allowing the police to search Sukeda's phone and seize. And here's the description, and this one's going to be a little bit different. The contents of the Apple iPhone, including pictures, videos, chat messages, app content and data, MMS and SMS messages, contacts, call logs, and website histories. Based upon the results of the cell phone searches, and there's two because Cole got his warrant, Sukeda is ultimately charged with a variety of criminal offenses. A trial court suppresses the results of both searches and the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania appeals. Uh, This is, I believe, still at the trial court level. It appears that, at least in Pittsburgh, uh, there is a suppression judge who is assigned to all warrant suppression cases, uh, and it's the suppression judge who hears the case first, and then uh, it goes to another superior court judge. So that's what the appeal is here. It's not to a court of appeals. And the court found that the warrants, in fact, should be uh, suppressed. Why? What's the court's rationale? The court says this warrant is overbroad. It authorized the police to search for and seize items without establishing probable cause that there was any reason to believe that those items were somehow connected with a crime. Here's the the court dealing with one of the Commonwealth's arguments. Quote, the Commonwealth argues that given the nature of digital information on a cell phone, it was reasonable to search Cicada's entire phone for evidence of his interactions with the minor. This misses the mark. The first warrant was overbroad because of what the police could search for not where they could search for it. Because the warrant authorized the seizure of all the files on the phone, it doesn't matter where on Sukeda's phone they could search for the files. In other words, 
even with the search of cell phones, probable cause establishes the basis for the search. Unless you have probable cause, you can't search beyond that. Every police officer in the country knows that, right? If you have probable cause to search a garage, you can't search the house unless you have probable cause to search the house as well. Um, the court, though, has to kind of deal with the fact that the second warrant here was much more particular, right? The, the references to MMS and SMS uh, messages and website history and the like. Uh, and the court somehow has to deal with that fact. And the court says, well, look, this is classic uh, fruit of the poisonous tree, all right? Uh, you only got the second warrant because of the first illegal warrant. The first warrant was overbroad, so the second warrant cannot stand. Uh, the, and the court ends up upholding the motion to suppress. So there's a lot of lessons to learn in this case, some of them very positive lessons, right? Uh, lessons about how the police officers handled the investigation, that they went to get for a warrant in the first place, albeit an overbroad one, that they went to get the warrant, uh, that Detective Cole uh, got a second warrant after discovering something on the cell phone. That shows, I think, a pretty good adherence to positive procedures. Uh, but uh, the negative lesson is when you're going to search a cell phone, you have to be very, very particularized. If you have probable cause uh, to search a cell phone because the allegation is that an improper text message was sent on December 2nd, 2023, write the warrant to look for improper text messages sent on December 2nd, 2023. Don't write the warrant to look for photographs or email or text messages from another day. Hone down the probable cause, and that's what should go in the warrant application. By the way, uh, just a bit of an apology. Uh, I've got that head cold that seems to be going around the entire country right now. Hopefully not the version of it that lasts two and three weeks. So my voice is a little bit different than normal. Okay, let's stay in Pennsylvania and talk about the Thin Blue Line flag case. You all know what the Thin Blue Line flag is, uh, and it has widely made its way around the country over the course of the last few years, uh, and it became the basis for, I think, a pretty important constitutional law case involving Springfield Township in Pennsylvania. Officers who work for the police department there are represented by the Police Benevolent Association. And the PBA incorporated the thin blue line flag into its logo. The flag also shows up in various parts of the main police station, uh, but only those parts to which the public has limited access. So, for example, the flag appears on a bulletin board displaying patches from other police departments that included the thin blue line flag. Uh, the flag or a replica of it hangs on walls 
and sometimes it's part of challenge coins that are displayed on officers' desks. In 2022, several township residents contacted both the PBA and the township expressing concerns about the PBA's logo. Uh, and the concern was that uh, the flag had been the center of controversy uh, between minority communities and law enforcement officials across the country. And uh, there was the claim that the flag had been usurped by white nationalists. Uh, so in, uh, in response, the township goes to the PBA and says, look, we'll pay uh, for the cost of you changing your logo. And not only that, we've got a private donor who's going to pay up to $10,000 for that purpose. The PBA puts the matter to a vote, and the membership votes not to change the logo. Well, then the township attorney, uh, or he's called in Pennsylvania the solicitor, and the township's manager send a cease and desist letter to the PBA about its use of the flag. Uh, and they recite the fact that uh, many township residents had expressed, quote, deep discontent and distrust of the PBA and even the township's own police department due to the PBA's use of the flag. And they conclude the letter by saying, regardless of the history or original intent of the PBA in displaying the flag, quote, to many members of the Springfield Township community, the utilization of the Blue Lives Matter flag uh, unnecessarily exacerbates the ongoing conflict between police officers and the communities they serve. The letter ends up with a direction for the PBA and its members to discontinue all depictions of the flag or have the PBA remove the words Springfield Township, end quote, from its name. Uh, interesting, asking the union to change its name. Uh, the PBA uh, held another vote, and the vote was no, and the township commissioners draft a resolution. It's called Resolution 1592, and it bans a thin blue line flag, uh, the depiction of the thin blue line flag, on any publicly visible uh, way on the clothing or skin, uh-oh, we're going into tattoos now, of any township employee, agent, or whatever during the workday of the individual. Resolution 1592 also bans any depiction of the flag on any personal property of a township employee uh, that is brought into the township building uh, or... It, the display of the flag in a location likely to be seen by a member of the public when visiting the building. Uh, it also bars uh, the flag from being affixed on township-owned property, including vehicles, by any person. Well, by this time, the PBA is through voting, uh, and instead it goes to federal court and seeks an injunction banning the enforcement of Resolution 1592, and the court agrees and issues an injunction. Why? 
There's a classic First Amendment principle that's involved in this case, and that is that regulations of speech almost always may not depend upon the content of the speech. That is known as viewpoint regulation. And the idea, and this is an idea that comes to us for many years all the way up to and including the Supreme Court, the idea is that government should not be using its authority to regulate the content of speech. So how, how does the judge deal with this issue? The judge says, first of all, I have no problem finding that Resolution 1592 regulates speech that's on a matter of public concern. Uh, the judge cites the fact that the display of the thin blue line flag uh, is a symbol that is both a symbol of respect for fallen members of the law enforcement communities, and it also has been used to protest the Black Lives Matter movement. Both of those are matters of public concern. Uh, the judge then says, well, once I found that the speech is a matter of public concern, the burden of proof shifts over to the township, and the township has to show that it has identified a real harm posed by the display of this flag and that the ban, as applied, addresses the harm in a direct and material way. And the judge said, Township, you haven't done either one of those things. Quote, the township seems to concede that it has no evidence of workplace disruption caused by the display of the flag. Neither has it shown that the flag has caused a real disruption in relations between the police and township residents. The township has pointed to complaints that a handful of residents made to it about the flag, but even accepting those comments as evidence that the PBA's use of the flag has caused some strain, a handful of complaints does not transform the township's concern of widespread discord from the conjectural to the real. Uh, and the, the judge specifically cites the testimony of the township's manager that he was unaware of any disruptions in township services because of the flag. The judge ends up talking about another problem with the resolution, although you know the judge has clearly already held that uh, the resolution is unconstitutional. And this is the problem that the resolution is under-inclusive. What's the judge say about that principle of under-inclusivity? Uh, quote, the resolution is under-inclusive in the township employees, including police officers, are allowed to engage in other forms of discourse that could exacerbate racial tensions and undermine public confidence in the police department. For example, nothing in the resolution precludes an officer while on duty and in uniform from voicing opposition to the Black Lives Matter movement or carrying a coffee cup that says Blue Lives Matter. Both forms of speech would seem to trigger the same concerns that the township is trying to address through the resolution 
perhaps in an even more direct way, end quote. So the judge finds that the resolution violates the free speech rights of the PBA and its members and issues an injunction prohibiting the enforcement of the resolution. So prediction, what's the first thing that township solicitor going to do when he gets back to the office? He's going to start reviewing all of the city's codes of conduct for every single department and is going to be proposing changes about whether or not township employees can engage in speech while on duty that could exacerbate racial uh, concerns. Uh, This is just a case where the employer's rules weren't up to snuff. Next up is a case out of Connecticut uh, involving a firefighter union. Uh, That raises the question, can a union challenge an arbitrator's opinion? Uh, This is a case involving firefighter Nicola Tamburo, uh, who works for Stamford, Connecticut. He's a member of Local 786 of the IAFF. And during the COVID-19 pandemic, the city established protocols that restricted entrance to its various buildings. It mandated mask wearing, social distancing, and required submission to temperature checks and health questions at a designated spot when people entered the buildings. Uh, On April 9th, 2020, Tamburo violated the protocols. He comes into fire headquarters through an undesignated door without submitting to a temperature check or health inquiries and, of course, not wearing a mask. Uh, He then walks past several firefighters uh, and begins engaging in a shouting match with another firefighter. The city conducts an investigation. Tom Burrow gets placed on administrative leave. When the investigation is done, the city mandates that he forfeit 15 days vacation time and complete an anger management course. I'm wondering, by the way, uh, what the word day means in Stamford, Connecticut. Could it be a 24-hour day so that Tom Burrow's would have forfeited uh, 15, 24-hour days worth of vacation. That seems like a pretty extreme punishment. But in any case, the opinion does not tell us the answer to that question. Uh, Tamburo asks Local 786 to challenge his discipline in arbitration. It does. It refers a grievance to arbitration. And an arbitrator uh, denies the grievance. Local local 786 then files a lawsuit challenging the arbitrator's opinion. So the question, can a union challenge an arbitrator's opinion? Uh, I look at uh, dozens and dozens of cases every year where somebody is challenging an arbitrator's opinion, probably in triple digits. Uh, And I'll tell you, I can go years without seeing a case where it's the union that is challenging the arbitrator's opinion. It's almost always the employer. But yes, a union does have the right to challenge an arbitrator's opinion. Arbitration is a matter of contract, right? 
And the contract is between the employer and the union. And that contract uh, sets the rules for arbitration, what an arbitrator can decide, what an arbitrator's remedy could be, uh, that sort of thing. And either party to that contract has the right to enforce the contract through challenging an arbitrator's opinion that is beyond the scope of what the arbitrator was allowed to do. Uh, so Local 786 does have the right to challenge the arbitrator's opinion. What are its arguments? Uh, the first one uh, was uh, that the arbitrator exceeded his authority. That's a, a standard challenge you see in these sorts of cases, that the arbitrator uh, decided something that the arbitrator wasn't given to decide. Uh, the court is thoroughly unimpressed with this argument. Uh, the court says, look, you remember back in that arbitration uh, where you agreed upon a statement of the issues to be presented to the arbitrator? And that agreement was, did the city of Stanford have just cause to discipline the grievant Nicola Tamburo? The judge says, that's it. That's the end of it. You gave the arbitrator the authority to decide whether the city had just cause. That's exactly what the arbitrator decided. There is a, a, a message in here that I, I think is a pretty important one. And that is that the statement of the issue in arbitration can be really, really important later on down the road. It's the statement of the issue that frames the arbitrator's jurisdiction, what the arbitrator can decide. And if you ever want to be able to challenge an arbitrator's opinion, you're going to have to be very careful about how you write the statement of the issue. Even if you don't want to ever challenge an arbitrator's opinion, an arbitrator's going to look at the statement of the issue as the confines of her or his authority. So pay attention to statements of the issue when you're in arbitration. Uh, so back to the court here. Quoting, the arbitration submission was unrestricted. My inquiry is limited to determining whether the party vested the arbitrator with the decision to decide the issue presented. As long as the arbitrator's remedies were consistent with the agreement, they were within the scope of the submission. And here it's clear the arbitrator's remedy was within the scope of the arbitrator's authority. Local 786 has one last uh, argument, and the argument is that the evidence didn't support the arbitrator's conclusion. Oh my, uh, there's a fundamental problem with that argument. When you agree that an arbitrator's decision is final and binding, courts will tell you that means the decision is final and binding. An arbitrator can be wrong on the facts and wrong on the law and still have the arbitrator's opinion be upheld. What you're agreeing to when you're agreeing to binding arbitration 
is an alternative system of dispute resolution. Instead of the world of the courtroom, you are in the world of the arbitration hearing room. And you win or lose in that room. You come out of that room and you want to try to argue that the facts or the law don't support the arbitrator's opinion. It is easy to predict how that one is going to come out. Quoting from the court again, the court will not second guess the arbitrator and review the evidence underlying the award to determine whether it is sufficient to sustain the just cause standard or the severity of the discipline imposed. It was for the arbitrator and not this court to construe the collective bargaining agreements just cause standard and apply it to the facts the arbitrator found to exist based upon the evidence presented in the arbitration hearing. Now, when I did the introduction to this podcast, I said this case was going to pose the question, uh, does a union have the authority, the ability to challenge an arbitrator's opinion? But I also posed a second question very quickly. Should a union challenge an arbitrator's opinion? And my suggestion to the union folks listening to this podcast is that you never do so. Arbitration is a system that is a much quicker, much less expensive and uh, form of resolving grievances with grievances being heard by arbitrators who do nothing other than decide labor grievances. You get a grievance in front of a court, I can tell you anything can and will happen. If a union wants to preserve the sanctity of the arbitration process, why would it start challenging arbitrators' opinions from time to time? That would do nothing other than give your employer the opportunity to say, even you don't trust arbitration. Why should we have binding arbitration? of grievances. So without regard to whether you can do something, uh, maybe you shouldn't do something. In this case, challenge an arbitrator's opinion in a disciplinary case. Next up, a a case from uh, Massachusetts. We have an East Coast bent uh, this week, don't we? Case from Massachusetts on whether or not a union president can waive a union's collective bargaining rights. So this is a case that comes out of the city of Methuen, probably pronouncing that wrong too, Massachusetts, uh, and involves local 117 of the New England PBA. Uh, The PBA represents police dispatchers working for the city. And at the time, Uh, The police chief was Joseph Solomon, and the president of the union was uh, somebody named Robert Finn. In 2020, uh, so right at the time of the pandemic, uh, the PBA and the city negotiate a memorandum of agreement, uh, I'll call it an MOA, providing dispatchers with an additional day off per year. And the MOA also credited each dispatcher with eight hours of comp time per week for use after the pandemic was declared over. Uh, uh, The 
MOA is approved by both sides. And on April 10, 2020, Solomon, the police chief, issues an order implementing the provisions of the MOA. Finn and Solomon, union president, police chief, uh, have a discussion. And they agree that Solomon, as the chief, would be able to rescind the agreement when he deemed it necessary to do so. Well, that happened three months later. Uh, On June 30, uh, 2020, Solomon rescinds the MOA, returns all dispatchers to their previous shift schedules, uh, and says, we're all good now. Well, Local 117, the PBA, uh, now has a new president. And guess what job the new president holds? New president is a dispatcher. And the PBA files a prohibitive practice, think of it as unfair labor practice, charge with the Massachusetts Labor Committee uh, challenging the rescission of the MOA. Uh, And so there's a variety of questions that the hearing officer for the Massachusetts Labor Committee has to decide, but only really two of them are worth talking about. Uh, The first is, Uh, that the hearing officer has to decide whether or not by issuing the order rescinding the MOA, the city illegally repudiated the language of the MOA. The hearing officer decides no. Uh, The hearing officer says, uh, look, I know the union is arguing here, that the terms of the agreement had to stay in effect until the pandemic was over, as declared by the federal government. Um, And the MOA, uh, however, just simply didn't say that. There's nothing in the MOA that explicitly stated that its provisions would remain in effect until the end of the pandemic, Um, and nothing in a reference to the federal government. So what I have here is a ambiguous agreement as to the circumstances under which this MOA could be terminated. So when you've got an ambiguous uh, provision in an agreement or an ambiguous agreement in and of itself, what can the third party that's hearing the case do? can refer to extrinsic evidence, extrinsic evidence such as past practice or negotiations history uh, or industry standards, whatever it might be. Uh, And the arbitrator said uh, there is very relevant applicable bargaining history here. Quote, in this case, Finn and Solomon negotiated the terms of the MOA and agreed that Solomon as chief would be able to rescind the agreement if he deemed it necessary without bargaining with the union. The record is clear that the parties did not intend for the provisions of the MOA to remain in effect unless and until the pandemic was declared over. I don't find Solomon's decision to stop providing dispatchers with one extra day off and eight hours of comp time per week repudiated the party's MOA. The PBA, though, has one additional argument, and the additional argument is, look, 
without regard to whether there was this authority to terminate the MOA, uh, certainly the city had to provide notice and an opportunity to bargain before it actually put the termination into effect. Uh, and it's clear in Massachusetts, uh, it is in every state where there's a bargaining obligation that if an employer unilaterally changes the condition of employment without first giving notice and bargaining, it's violated its obligation to collectively bargain in good faith. Uh, what does the hearing officer do with that argument? Because clearly this concerns mandatory subjects of bargaining, right? Extra time off and uh, and the addition of comp time, uh, what the hearing officer does is to say the city did bargain over this. It bargained over it at the time it reached the MOA. And I'm quoting, Solomon and Finn agreed that, the, that Solomon could end the MOA at any time without bargaining. As such, Solomon's decision to rescind the scheduling and compensation terms didn't violate the law. The city didn't end the provisions of the MOA and implement new terms and conditions of employment. The city merely returned to the status quo that existed before the MOA. Uh, and maybe this is a day for lessons in all of these cases, but there is a lesson to be learned in this case as well. Uh, and that is that unions should be very careful about what their constitutions and bylaws say about who can reach an agreement that binds the union. If you want the president to be able to reach some uh, agreements of that sort, uh, nothing wrong with that, uh, but make sure it's in your constitution and bylaws. If you don't want the president to be able to do so, if you want that decision to be made by a board of directors or an executive board or a grievance committee or whatever it might be, say that. Because otherwise, uh, the party on the other side, in this case the employer, is going to be able to assume that the person with whom it is negotiating has the authority to make the deal. The last thing I want to talk about is what I referred to as a bit of a Christmas present for you. Uh, I read a lot of academic articles. Um, I don't know why. I don't understand statistics as well as I should. I couldn't tell you what p-hacking is for, you know, all the tea in China. Uh, but something about the language and the studies, whether it's biology or physics or social sciences or something. I, I just read a lot of that sort of stuff. Um, and courtesy of a friend down in California, a study came across my desk where I took a look at it and I could not decide initially whether or not it was a gag. I read the whole thing. It's long. We're, we're posting it in the show notes there. Uh, and, and I reread it. Uh, and I still couldn't decide whether it was real. And then I ended up deciding or thinking, yeah, it is real. This guy actually did the study and produced the results. I have to be careful here. 
Um, I don't know if you know this, but Apple Podcasts has a system where they screen podcasts for the use of what they determine to be objectionable words. And this study is about one of those words, so I can't use it. So instead of the word, I'm going to have to use something that maybe sounds a little bit like it. Uh, So here's the study. It's called Duck colon, the police. Uh, These studies all start off with an abstract of what the study is. And let me just read you the abstract. It's only a paragraph long. This study focuses on police profanity with a particular interest developing reasonable policy to regulate the use of the word, quote, duck, end quote. Officers employ duck as a linguistic tool to accomplish a range of goals, such as establishing authority, fostering solidarity, and diffusing tension. However, duck can also be used derogatorily and negatively impact public assessments of police actions. Policy in this area is either absent, overly broad, or inappropriate for its intended use. Following brief, unstructured interviews with line and executive officers, I propose a novel policy theory of profanity, deriving target and intent. I test the theory in a pre-registered experiment administered to a sample of police and human resources executives, parentheses, N equals one, four, nine, two, end quote. That's the number of participants in the study. With each respondent evaluating multiple vignettes, results support the proposed theory and generate useful recommendations for practitioners interested in strengthening the ability of agencies to constrain professionally inappropriate use of profanity in the workplace. Okay, well, that's interesting. Uh, and it's not entirely uh, about an issue that occasionally does pop up in labor law. I've handled cases in which police officers have been disciplined for swearing at somebody. Uh, I certainly have dealt with employers that have rules that prohibit all use of profanity. So this is, uh, this is something that is uh, actually real. And I commend this guy. Uh, he is a professor at the University of South Carolina by the name of Ian T. Adams. Uh, I commend him uh, for uh, get, doing this study. It's, and the results are very interesting. So what does the study do? Uh, first of all, he takes a look at uh, the history uh, the, of the use of the word duck, the literature review. Uh, and talks about how these sorts of words are just common to all of us and common to all languages. Uh, and then he moves into the whole issue of police and profanity. Um, and he says, quote, if to be human is to curse, then any single study of police cursing will always fall short. There is no part of the human brain labeled police cursing. So 
uh, he then states what his goal is. I'm going to try to lay out for you, he says, what your rules should look like. I'm not the first one to do this. There have been prior studies. Uh, he says police profanity has been a frequent focus of scholarship, and you can find those articles linked as well. Uh, and then he uh, refers to the frequency of the use of uh, profanity. And he gives you what he calls a domestic violence scenario that apparently is something that actually exists. Uh, so, officer, this stupid mother ducker is coming home. Officer to the person, stop moving, mother ducker. Officer, I said stop ducking, moving now. Officer, get on the goddamn ground now, mother ducker, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, and uh, then he gets into uh, what sorts of use of the word that you see by the police. Table one in this study is, quote, duck, end quote, uses by police. And I'll just give you a few of them that he's got. It's a very long list, uh, and it's, uh, I'm afraid, entirely hilarious to see. Some of these, uh, most of these I've heard, but some of them I have never heard. Uh, okay, so duckmonger. A person who instigates conflict, trouble, or negative situations. Ducknado, a whirlwind of chaos, confusion, or destructive behavior. Ducknut, that I've heard. A term used to describe a person who behaves foolishly or is perceived as lacking uh, competence. Duckometer, a hypothetical measure of the level of chaos, difficulty, or frustration in a situation and duxational, an ironic term, used to describe a situation or event as being particularly unpleasant or desirable. Uh, the author then describes the study, and uh, what he did was to expose uh, the uh, 1,492 participants in the study to various statements using the word, uh, he made sure that he had three categories, a derogatory category where the word was used to belittle or offend, positive category where the word is used to express solidarity or encouragement, and the neutral category, uh, which would include the use of the word to articulate emotions or attitudes uh, or feelings. Uh, and then he talked about uh, who the statement was aimed for because it could be aimed to nobody, could be aimed to uh, somebody who an officer encounters on the street, or it could be aimed to the officer themselves. Uh, the people he did the survey with are uh, pretty high-ranking people in the public sector. Uh, uh, all of them, uh, or most of them predominantly, were serving in leadership roles. 72% uh, of them were heads of law enforcement agencies and 24% were heads of human relations. And the respondents came from uh, all over the country. Uh, and if you 
want to try to work your way through them. He even gives you the formulas that he ends up using. Uh, And he ends up with a conclusion that I think is really good, uh, and it'll be interesting to see if anybody uh, follows up on this. He ends up saying one size does not fit all. Quote, I have attempted to lay out the language in use properties of the word duck in policing, revealing its capacity to convey multiple meanings and functions, from emphasis and camaraderie to power and aggression. The complexity of even this single swear word puts the lie to policy that attempts to regulate through blanket bands of profanity. I propose a theory of profanity policy and found confirmation through the survey. There is a national consensus that acknowledges the nuanced context in which profanity may be used and advocates for a more precise and informed approach to its regulation. It is a really interesting study. I commend it to you. It's fun to read. He presents it as deadly serious, but it's clear. Uh, It's done with uh, his tongue firmly in his cheek, uh, in spots, at least certainly that list of the different variants of uh, the word. Uh, And I'll be very curious to see whether or not this actually takes hold in terms of police policy. Well, that's it for the December 2023 version of First Thursday. Hope you can join us at our union leadership seminar uh, in Las Vegas, new hotel for us, the Horseshoe Hotel. Uh, That seminar will be in the last week of January. Uh, And if you can't see us then, uh, look forward to talking with you next month in the 2024 edition, uh, first one of uh, First Thursday. Hope you all have a great holiday season. This is Will Aitchison signing off.